I've always been intrigued by the way that actors portray Jesus. Isn't that a daunting role? I mean, can you think of anything that would be harder to do as an actor than to play the God-man? And nobody really can match you know, the charisma of Jesus, and so they never really quite get it right. And we also have our own ideas in our head about what Jesus is like, and rarely do they match that. And then they go on and they play other roles, and you look at them and you go, well, that's not like Jesus at all. And so, you know, there's no real portrayal of Jesus that uh, is exactly right. I've watched many different actors portray Jesus over the years. Jonathan Rumi is doing it right now in The Chosen, and Jim Caviezel did it in The Passion of the Christ, and I saw Henry Ian Cusick in The Gospel of John, and Bruce Marciano in The Visual Bible, Matthew. I even watched John Legend play Jesus in Jesus Christ Superstar. Um, But of all the times that I've watched Jesus on the screen, the most impactful scene that I have ever seen contained no dialogue at all. It was actually at the end of the visual Bible, after the credits, that I watched this scene. It was this slow motion, silent scene, and it started with just uh, these sandaled feet that you could see. And as it widened out, you could see that Jesus was walking away from the camera. It seemed to be right next to the the, the Sea of Galilee. And he's walking very slowly, and then suddenly he kind of turns around and he puts his arm out. He's looking right at the camera, like at me, right? He's putting his arm down, and he kind of, he goes, this little smile on his face. And he turns around and keeps walking and stops again and turns around and waves his arm. And it's that freeze frame right there. Big smile on his face. And the reason I love that scene so much is because really it put in a visual form what happened to me In the summer of 1981, when I accepted Jesus' invitation uh, to follow him, it was the happiest day of my life. And I know that it was a happy day for Jesus, too, as was the day that you chose to follow him. It was a day of rejoicing in heaven because God's dream was coming true. Do you remember what the Apostle Paul said in chapter 1 of Ephesians? He said that God's eternal plan is something that God's had in his mind forever, It was to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, under Jesus. So God's dream was to beckon people one by one to Jesus and in the process unify them through their common love for and devotion to Jesus Christ. And our coming together in what Scripture calls the church I mean, what we're doing right now, that is stage one of God's secret plan for world peace. That gathering of diverse people all seeking and loving and following Jesus delights the heart of God. Just imagine what it's been like uh, these last few weeks for God as he has watched from his vantage point uh, the Asbury College revival. Have you heard about that? Do you know what's going on? It happened, it started back on February 8th with an ordinary chapel service on that campus. And uh, when the service ended, the speaker texted his wife that his sermon was a stinker. And all but about 18 students filed out of the chapel. But as that small group stayed and prayed, more and more students felt compelled to return to the chapel to pray and to worship. And eventually it filled to capacity. 
And the chapel remained open 24 hours a day for two weeks straight until leaders had to put an end to it because the small town of Wilmore, Kentucky, where Asbury College is, did not have the infrastructure to accommodate the thousands of people who had come to get in on what God was doing in that chapel. But since then, that revival has been spreading like wildfire around the country, especially on other Christian college campuses. And one thing that I have heard again and again is how refreshing it has been that God has been doing what He has been doing without people trying to upstage Him. J.D. Walt, the Asbury University chaplain, said, Jesus is the only celebrity here. Isn't that beautiful? What's been happening on all those college campuses is God's dream come true, unity among people who find themselves close to one another because of their common desire to be close to Jesus. Three weeks ago, when we began to study the second half of Ephesians, we learned that living a life worthy of the calling we have received begins with maintaining the unity that Jesus died to create. Remember, Paul highlighted three different dimensions of the fruit of the Spirit that we must cultivate in order to preserve unity. He talked about humility, that is, valuing others above ourselves, and meekness, which means waiting for God to make things right when things go wrong. And he talked about patience, putting up with each other when we get on each other's nerves. That's the kind of love that keeps us all glued together. But here's what we need to add to our understanding of unity. There's more to it than just peace, just the absence of conflict. That's just part of God's dream. The unity that God has in mind for us is way more profound than that. See, Paul uses the word unity again in verse 13 of Ephesians 4, but look at how he describes it. He calls it unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. So it's not just an effort to live at peace with those who are different from us. It's growth toward an agreement about what is true. That's what Paul meant when he talked about unity in the faith. Agreeing about what is true. And it's genuine intimacy with Jesus Christ. That's what's meant by uh, those words, the knowledge of the Son of God. So it's only as we grow together in both our theological and experiential knowledge of Jesus that we become mature, look at the passage, that we become mature attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That's the unity that God dreamt about. That's what, it was, that's what he had in his mind from the very beginning, this unity that results from all of us growing to become more and more like Jesus. Isn't it awesome that God's purpose for your life is to make you like Jesus Christ. What better thing could be said of you? Think about this. At your funeral, what would you want people to say about you that could be better than them saying, that person reminded me of Jesus? What could be more awesome? What could you want more from God than for Him to make you as loving, as compassionate, as gracious, as holy, as influential as Jesus Himself was? That's what he's doing. There are lots of different passages in the New Testament that tell us that that is exactly what God is up to. 
He's making us more like Jesus. But it wasn't until I looked at those passages again this last week that it struck me that they're all plural. Nowhere that I know of in the Bible does it say that God's plan is to make me or you more like Jesus. It's always for him to make us more like Jesus. All of us. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, plural, not singular, until he's formed in all of you. We know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That's the fullness of God's dream. Unity among his people, not just because we're determined to get along, but because we're all growing toward maturity, which by definition means we're all growing toward Christ-likeness. That's where God is taking us. But the question is, how does that transformation process happen? Church-wide, I mean. How do we all grow together toward unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God? Well, the secret sauce, ironically, is our diversity. See, verses 1 through 6 of Ephesians 4, there the emphasis was on what we have in common. There's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. But, verse 7, to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says in Psalm 68, when he, Jesus, ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. Those gifts that Paul is talking about are our spiritual gifts, supernatural abilities that God has given us to serve other people in a special way. That word grace in verse 7 um, is another common way that spiritual gifts are described. They're described as grace gifts because they are given to us graciously by God. He doesn't give them to us because we're worthy of them, because we deserve them, because we earn them. He gives them to us just because of His kindness. There are four different chapters in the New Testament that talk about spiritual gifts. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4. And all four of those chapters have a couple of things in common. First, they emphasize the diversity of our spiritual gifts. In all, there are 20 different spiritual gifts mentioned in the New Testament, but in each passage, the writer just seems to be giving a sampling of the many different ways in which the Spirit of God works. So there's all kinds of different ways that God works uniquely in us. And the second thing that all four passages emphasize is that every single Christian is gifted. You may think, nope, I'm the exception. Well, you're not. There are no exceptions. Look at what Paul says in verse 7. But to each one, each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. So you are, in some way, gifted by God to do something that nobody else can do. Every passage on spiritual gifts emphasizes that. 
But what's unique in this passage, in Ephesians 4, is that it shows us how all of our gifts operate together to build the church up toward Christ-likeness. So here's how the transformation process works. It starts with leadership gifts. Those are in verse 11, where it says, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. Paul says that Jesus has given to his church uh, people with four particular leadership gifts. First two that he mentions, apostles and prophets, are the same group uh, of leaders that he said back in chapter 2, verse 20 of this same book, form the foundation of the church. I think what that means is that the truth that God revealed through the apostles, those original followers of Jesus, and through prophets, those that God gave the, the special ability to, to share his truth directly. They were just like channels. They were conduits of his truth to his people. That those, those two groups of people um, formed that foundation. They, they, they defined for us exactly what Christians of all centuries are to believe. That's the reason why their teachings are, are preserved in the Bible. Basically, what the New Testament is, is it's the written form of the teachings of the apostles and the prophets. See, their, um, their teaching, it was direct revelation from God to the church. So it's foundational. And then, God, uh, Paul mentions two different types of leaders that have been called to pass on this truth to God's people. First, he mentions evangelists. Those are people in the church who have a special calling and a special gift of sharing the gospel messages. Now, it's not that nobody else is supposed to do that, but they're, they're unusually good at it and unusually fruitful at it. They are able to bring lots of people into the church by sharing with them the gospel message, the, the, the simplest, most important truth of Christianity, what Jesus did for us in order to forgive our sins and bring us to God. And then Paul adds to, the, to, to this list pastors and teachers. And just from the way that the Greek sentence is structured, it seems to me that Paul was thinking of those two designations as a package. It's like uh, conjoined twins, right? It's, it, it, they they kind of go together. That's why you hear some people referred to as pastor teachers or as teaching pastors. Um, it's because they have been called to pastor, to shepherd. To, that's the same word in the Greek language. Uh, to, that is, they're, they're to lead and care for and feed God's people. And the way, the primary way that they are to do that is through their teaching. Now, there are teachers who are not pastors. There are pastors who are not teachers. But I can relate to this particular combination of gifts because the primary way that I pastor the church is through my teaching. I have no doubt that what God has called me to do and what he has gifted me to do is to help you understand and apply the teachings of the apostles and prophets, or to say it really sh briefly, my job is to teach you the Bible. But what I want you to see is that all of these leaders mentioned in verse 11 have one thing in common. They've been called to communicate God's truth in one form or another. That's the specialized ministry of these four types of church leaders. But why does God want people like me to teach people like you his word? Well, you just got to have to keep reading the passage. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers, here it is, to equip God's people 
for works of service. Who are his people? You are. Actually, uh, the original word is saints, which we, we would, if you read that, you go, well, that's not me. I'm not a saint. But actually, the Bible says, yes, you are. You are one that has been separated by God for service to him. All of us are. Every single Christian is a saint. It, we're, we're all God's people. And the whole point of teaching the Bible, the reason why I do it, is so that all of us have what we need to do what God wants. Look at this passage from the book of 2 Timothy. It says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God, that's where you put your name in there, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. See that word equipped there? It's the very same word that Paul uses in Ephesians 4. Christ gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service. See that phrase, works of service? In the New American Standard Bible, it is translated the work of ministry. It's not so important that you understand that, except that the word ministry is used sometimes in our, in our language, and you need to just understand uh, what it means. Like if you, when you say, when you say um, that you know, Greg is in the ministry, you're right. But you need to know that you also are in the ministry. That's exactly what this passage says. He says that those of you who would not use any of the titles that are in verse 11 to describe yourself are also in the ministry. See it there? To equip God's people for the work of ministry or works of service. If you're a Christian, you're a minister. You have been called into ministry, just as I have. You've been gifted for ministry, just as I have. It's critical for you to understand that because Paul says that it's your ministry that helps build up the body of Christ until, verse 13, we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attained to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. You see, in order for God's dream to come true, in order for us to be unified, truly unified, unified in our understanding of the Christian faith and in our intimacy with Jesus, to the point that we actually become like Jesus, not just some of us, but all of us, in order for us to achieve that kind of unity and to, to reach that level of maturity, we all must do the work of ministry. So write this summary sentence down in your notes. Christ gives leaders to equip God's people for ministry, to build up his body, to Christ-likeness. That's Ephesians 4, 7 through 16 in a nutshell. It's how God reproduces the character of Jesus in those of us who follow Jesus. But you might look at that and say, okay, so I'm supposed to do the work of ministry, but what exactly does that mean? Like, what's my job description? You may think you know what my job description is, but do you know what yours is? Well, we can answer that question first by just thinking a little more deeply about those two ingredients in God's recipe for maturity in verse 13, unity in the faith and unity in the knowledge of the Son of God. So clearly God wants us to grow together in a couple of different ways. First, in what we might call head knowledge. Write that down, head knowledge. 
I think that's what he means by unity in the faith. Notice that he does not say that we're to grow in our unity in faith. He says our unity in the faith. That is, in the body of truth that defines what we have faith in. Paul is talking about our understanding, not just of the simple gospel message, but of the larger body of biblical truth. Get this, God wants every Christian to know his word. Now, obviously, there are going to be different levels of biblical knowledge among us. But all of us, every single one of us must have, if we're going to grow, if we're going to grow to what God wants us to grow to, if, we're going to, if we are going to make his dream come true, we all have to have a grasp on the basic teachings of the Bible. Why is it so important? Verse 14 tells us, because then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Boy, Paul's kind of, he kind of goes dark right there. It gets a little bit negative. But that's because he knows, and sometimes we don't know this in our world, that most of what comes to us in the, in, in the, that we would look at and say, that's spiritual teaching? Most of it is hogwash. You know when you're going through your phone and you're seeing, you know, Sometimes people in churches saying stuff, little snippets over and over again, or you see this stuff on TV, or some expert is interviewed, or whatever it is, however these different ways are, the books that we read, stuff that we hear that we say, this is, this is good spiritual stuff. Most of the time, it's not. That's what Paul says. He says a lot of the time, it's, it's a product of the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. They've got a motive for telling you something that is not true. And the only way for us to know what is true and what's false, or to say it another way, the only way for us to be pillars instead of buoys in the ocean of misinformation that surrounds us is to understand the faith as it, ex as it is explained to us in the Bible. So head knowledge really matters, but so does heart knowledge. Yes, we have to have an intellectual understanding about Jesus, but if we want to become like him, we also need to experience intimacy with him. That's what Paul's talking about when he uses the phrase, the knowledge of the Son of God, in verse 13. There's a Greek word that means intellectual knowledge, but that's not the word that Paul uses here. He's using a word that means experiential knowledge. The knowledge that comes when we actually encounter Jesus the kind of knowledge that those students were experiencing at Asbury College. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about us being able to say, not just, I know about Jesus, but I know Jesus. God wants all of us to know Jesus in that way. So there's head knowledge and there's heart knowledge. It's that combination of the two that helps us to grow toward maturity until we as a church family attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And here's the kicker. It's your ministry that helps make both of these things happen in the lives of fellow Christians. God has called you to two specific ministries that relate directly to these two goals. First, because he wants us all to grow in head knowledge, he has given you the ministry of retelling truth. He wants you to take what you have learned 
from me and from other Bible teachers that you listen to and from your own reading of Scripture. He wants you to take that truth that you have received and repeat it to other Christians. Paul talks specifically about this ministry in verse 15, where he says, instead, that is, instead of being blown here and there by false teaching, we will, by speaking the truth in love, grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Speaking the truth in love. That's my ministry, and that's your ministry. My job is to speak the truth in love to you so that you can speak the truth in love to others in the body of Christ and even to those who are not yet Christians. And it's that multiplication of truth-telling that helps the whole body to grow up into Christ-likeness. That's one of the reasons why it's important to stay fully engaged in church um, throughout the service, because biblical truth is being taught in what we sing and in what we say. See, you're not just a recipient of God's truth. You're also a redistributor of it. You are not a consumer. You are a conduit. Have you ever been sitting in church and you hear something and you say, boy, I wish so-and-so was here because they really need to hear this? Well, you know what? They can hear it because you have a relationship with them. You can go to them and you can share that same truth. And it's probably going to be more powerful when you say it than when I say it because when I say it, I'm just talking to a whole bunch of people all at the same time and that's a way different thing than looking somebody in the eyes and speaking that same truth to them. Most of the spiritual growth that we experience does not come through sermons. It comes through conversations. It's not what I say. It's what you say that sounds a little bit like what I say. Sometimes I'm in a small group and we'll be talking about the previous Sunday's message. It's a little weird for me because I gave it. But like we're sitting there talking about it and then somebody will say something that is so... It just... It's just packaged so well. They say it's so perfect. I'm like, where were you last week when I was writing this message? I could have used that. That was good stuff. See, that person is taking the same truth, saying it in their own voice, with their own words. That's a very, very powerful thing. Even if you don't have a, a way with words, just the fact that you're saying it personally, um, it makes all the difference. So... Your calling, um, think of this illustration, your calling is to be a, like a spiritual sponge. Okay? You come here, you soak it up, this truth from God, and then you go out and you squeeze it out on others that God gives you the opportunity to talk to. This is your ministry. Retelling truth. Actually, I should say it's one of your ministries because there's a second bullet point on your job description that is at least implied in this passage. And this is a ministry that helps the body of Christ grow in heart knowledge. That is, in our intimacy with Jesus himself. It's the ministry of exercising your spiritual gift. You see, when you use your gift, you're not just serving others in a unique way you are also revealing Jesus in a unique way. Paul is more explicit about that over in 1 Corinthians 12. There he talks about how 
our spiritual gifts actually reveal Christ. First, he says in verse 7 of that chapter, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. And we can tend to kind of read right past that because we don't use the word manifestation in our everyday language. Um, but if we, if we skip past it, we're going to miss something really significant about our spiritual gifts. That word manifestation, it's a word that means revelation or unveiling, disclosing. See, when we use our spiritual gift to serve others, the Spirit of God, through us, gives other people a glimpse of Jesus. So when Paul says in verse 27 of 1 Corinthians 12, now you're the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it, he's not, he's not speaking in hyperbole. He's not just trying to you know, give a flowery illustration. He means what he says. We, the church, we are the 21st century body of Jesus Christ. And as each one of us exercises our spiritual gift, we reveal something of Jesus to other people. Let me just give you a few examples. Has there ever been a time in your life when you've been hurting deeply and another Christian with the gift of mercy came to you and wrapped their arms around you and cried with you? And when they left, you were overwhelmed with the love of Jesus. Like, like Jesus, thank you that you, that you love me like that. It, it's, it's almost like you were being hugged by Jesus himself. And there's a sense in which you were. Because that person was using their spiritual gift. The gift of mercy. Or maybe there's been a time when you were in a financial crisis. You didn't know how you were going to buy groceries for your family. And then somebody with the gift of giving came to you, and they gave you a very generous sum of money just to help you along. And when they did that, like, wasn't that a powerful moment for you with Jesus where you kind of go, well, Lord, you really care about me. Thank you that you love me so much that you're willing to meet my financial needs through another person in the church. How is it that you led them to me? I love you so much, Lord. See, that person revealed something of Jesus when they gave you that gift. Or maybe there was been a time when you've been severely depressed or you felt worthless, you felt like a failure. And then God sent somebody to you with the gift of encouragement, and he used them to just inject hope back into your life. And when they left, you said, thank you so much, Lord, that you saw me in, my, in, in, in how dark of time I'm in, and you sent somebody to me to lift me up like that. It helped you to realize that Jesus is an encourager. And he is because he encouraged you through that other person. We could talk about the time when you were wandering away from Jesus and somebody had the courage, somebody with the gift of exhortation, and they came to you and they put you back on the right path. They didn't let you wander away. Aren't you grateful for that? Or we could talk about the time when someone with the gift of faith prayed for you when your own faith was too weak to expect anything from God. Or we could talk about the time that someone with the gift of service came and, and, and helped you with a practical need, and it, you go, man, that's just like Jesus himself stopping by. I really needed that. See what happens when we use our gifts? The, the Spirit of God reveals Jesus to other Christians. He helps them feel his love, and the body of Christ grows in the heart knowledge it needs to reach spiritual maturity. Now, real quick, some of you may say, okay, I get it. 
theoretically, that I have a spiritual gift. I have no idea what it is. Okay, this is going to be real quick. ABCs. A, ability. Just take an inventory of your life. What is it that you do exceptionally well? B, blessing. What is it that you do that God seems to use in the lives of other Christians? Like when you do that, you go, I kind of felt like I was used by God when I did that. C, confirmation. This may be the most important one. What do other Christians who know you well tell you your gift is? I just want to encourage you, if you don't know what your gift is, keep seeking God for clarity about that because every gift is required for Jesus to reveal himself fully. Let me tell you about a friend of mine who had a hard time believing that. His name was Dave. Um, He was extremely shy. Um, This was in a ministry several years ago. Um, And he, he, um, I could see in him, despite his quiet demeanor, that he had a lot to offer others. And I asked him to be the leadership, on the leadership team of the ministry that um, I was a part of, and he agreed to do that. And the first, uh, the first time after that that we all got together, we had a little thing around the circle where I said, I want you to tell everybody else in this group what, you, what part of the body of Christ you think you are. Like, you know, so like one person would say, well, I'm the eye in the body of Christ because I'm able to see people who are in need, right? Somebody else, you know, might say, I'm the feet because I like to bring the good news to lost people, or I'm the hands because I help people out a lot, or whatever it was. Well, we got around to Dave. And he had a hard time answering the question. And finally he said, well, I guess I'm kind of like the pinky finger because I don't do much. The very next day, Dave broke a finger. Guess which one? That's right, it's pinky. For weeks afterward, Dave was walking around. That pinky finger was sticking out in a tiny little cast. And he said to me, after he had lived with this for a little while, I'm realizing how much a pinky does. Um, it was just a dramatic way that God taught him that every single gift is indispensable to the body. Whatever, you, whatever your self-image is, whatever you think you have to offer, you don't have to offer, God made you exactly the way that you are. He gave you the gifts that you have because that's what he wanted to do because it's important that you reveal Jesus in a way that nobody else can. And, and for you to say that you're not gifted is not just humility, it's heresy. So here's your job description for your ministry. One, retell the truth. Two, exercise your gift. That's it. Not complicated. But it's critical because if at any point this process aborts, our corporate growth toward Christ's likeness is stunted. Verse 16 says, it's such an important verse, from him, from Christ, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. It's interesting to me that this passage begins by telling us that our ministry is a gift. And it ends by telling us that it's a responsibility. But that's because it's both. It was the grace of God that piled on top of the gift of salvation the gift of service. It's an amazing thing, an amazing privilege for us to be able to be used by God in the lives of other people. If you've you've experienced it, you know that life doesn't get better than that. What grace that God would let us do that. But we are responsible 
to steward these gifts that we have been given faithfully because it's by doing so, it's by fulfilling our ministry that God's dream of seeing his church become like Christ comes true. Now, I know, I've been so aware of this as I've worked through this passage this week. I know that the church around the world is really a long ways from this, from this goal. It's not what God dreamed of. It's not unified. So often, it does not look at all like Jesus. So often, the church gives the world reasons to ignore or to reject Jesus. But we're not responsible for the church around the world. We're just responsible for this little part of the body of Christ, this pinky finger, which is White Pine Community Church. And we can give our corner of the world an accurate picture of Jesus by sharing his truth and by using our gifts to express his love. We can reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. We can attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So let's do that. And let's grow to be a little more like Jesus right now by taking communion together. There are very few more powerful manifestations of Jesus than the bread that we eat and the juice that we drink to remember the love that he lavished on us when he sacrificed his body and his blood for us on the cross. Now, if you're not yet a Christian, we don't expect you to participate with us in this memorial, but we do want you to know that he died for everyone, including you. See, the Bible says, this is, this is what the Bible calls the gospel or the good news. He says that, that God loves us so much that despite the fact that all of us have sinned against him and turned away from him, and despite the fact that the natural punishment for sin is death, that God in his love sent Jesus to die for sins, once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. And today we eat this bread and drink this cup to proclaim to you the Lord's death, which is what gives us life and which can also give you life. That man on the cross, he is the one whose image we are being conformed to. He is the one whose example we are called to follow. In verses 9 through 10 of Ephesians 4, Paul says that Jesus has ascended higher than all the heavens and that he fills the whole universe. But that's only because he also descended to the earth, to the cross, to the tomb. He knew that he was about to die when he... he uh, at that last supper with his disciples, took bread and gave thanks and broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. I gotta say, um, watching you eat and drink together is a beautiful thing for me. All lifting this to our mouths at the same time. What a picture that is to me 
of the unity that we have in Christ. Father, thank you that you have given us so much grace, almost more than we can handle. First, the grace of salvation. And then on top of that, the, the grace of service. Today, we ask you to give us a fresh outpouring of your Holy Spirit so that we will become bold retellers of your truth and faithful stewards of our gifts. Unify us in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. May we as a church become as much like Jesus as is possible in this broken world. God, please give us the grace to show those who so desperately need Jesus what he is like. In his name we pray. Amen.